The New Disruptors is sponsored this week by Zip Recruiter. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that puts a wide-angle lens on finding an audience for what you do. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. James Flynn is a New Zealander relocated to San Francisco, where he runs extrasensory devices. He's an engineer who started by developing modems, and now he creates drum tempo monitors, a light sensor add-on for the iPhone, and other interesting things. He's launched three Kickstarters, all of which have funded, and he has plenty more ideas in his pipeline. He's joined us to talk about the whole business of making products and producing them. James, welcome to the show. Hi, Glenn. Thanks. Great to have you on. And I know uh, one bit of your, your biography is interesting to me because uh, um, you're, you're in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Now, it used to be, and it may still be, the most dangerous place in San Francisco to live and work. But it's undergone a little bit of a renaissance, hasn't it, in the, uh, as property has become so expensive everywhere in the Bay Area? Well, I always say about the Tenderloin, it's not dangerous, it's just gross. Uh, <laughs> So, oh my goodness! Well, that's that used to be, you know, the place you went if you needed to get knifed in the groin, you'd right. go to the tenderloin. But now, right, right. Th- is there a startup community that's that's formed there because of property prices and rent? Yes, and also the uh, the San Francisco city government are making efforts to encourage businesses to locate there. So I think they offer some tax benefits. It doesn't quite apply to me yet because I'm not big enough. But yeah, there's some there's some efforts. Well, that's a good goal. That's a good goal to achieve. Then you get big enough so that you get government benefits for being a startup and hiring people and all that. It's terrific. Well, San Francisco is you know it's not the heart of Silicon Valley, right? That's further south, but it's where a lot of interesting things happen and. It's hard to have a ton of employees in San Francisco, but I imagine you're right now are a relatively small operation as, as you gear up. How many people are working with you on, on these products now? So I'm closely partnered with a, an industrial design firm mm-hmm. in, in Palo Alto. So I really use their engineers um, on an as-needed basis. And currently it's just me and one employee uh, running extrasensory devices. That's great. That's the, uh, I mean, that's the lean thing too is you aren't carrying right. a big payroll but mm-hmm. you can still get the advantage. So you're working on the on the thought side of this, the design side. Right, exactly. Well, you know, I was I was reading your biography and I see that you come from the semiconductor background, you were designing modems. How did you get into the engineering space? Was a, did you grow up with an engineering interest and and pursued it? Was that something later in life? Actually, no, not at all. I, I, I went to university and studied physics, uh, mostly because I didn't really know what to do. And I dabbled with engineering, but decided that it was a bit too applied and the wasn't answering the big questions. And then I came to uh, California to go skiing, uh, but I arrived in 1998 and stopped briefly in Palo Alto, or that was the intent, saw all the madness around me uh, and asked someone if it might be possible for me to get a job <laughs> in, in Silicon Valley rather than go and work as a, work as a lift attendant at in Tahoe, which was the plan. <laughs> so, like, do you regret that move though? There's something to be said for being the lift attendant too and skiing. Right? Like yes. Who knows what might have happened? <laughs> uh, actually, I'd had an obligation with a uh, with a resort in Tahoe um, because they'd recruited a lot of us from university in New Zealand. But oh, that's right. That was a time of high uh, high employment in America, right? Everything extremely high employment. Yeah, yes. So, yeah. Everybody, the McDonald. I remember there was a point where if you went to a McDonald's, the service was bad because they couldn't hire even at mcdonald's they couldn't hire people who they could train well enough because anyone who you could train had a better job right exactly and there were there were people on the street canvassing passers-by for uh 
for a job, basically offering jobs or asking you if you what qualifications you had. So, oh my gosh! But so you la- so you landed in Palo Alto. It's, it's too exciting. Everything going on there when you, right. when you got there in the late nineties was that. So that was on the engineering side, the the manufacturer and product creation side. Well, not really. I was actually just asking around for any kind of job. I mean, I was fresh out of college. Uh, I think I'd finished my last exam two weeks previously, so um, probably quite naive too. And I just asked someone about the possibility of getting a job, and he said, "Wait there, uh, I'll call someone." And then uh, the next Monday, I was uh, I was at work. Oh, that's a dream, especially right. I mean, now even the the green card, the working card situation, all that kind of stuff is so much more fraught. But uh, but they right. needed every available body back then. It let you bootstrap your way in. What what was that first job? Well, that job was for a fabulous semiconductor company designing mm-hmm. designing modems, and I had no idea what uh, what they were talking about in the interview. I mean, there was there was a two hour interview uh, of which I understood very little. And uh, and they understood that too, so they sent me to night classes for digital design. Oh, that's great! So they they thought you had the you had the chops because of the physics background. They felt you had the right. math or the the mentality to to do this work, and they let you train on the a job essentially. Exactly. Yeah, for, for probably a year or two. To be honest, I wasn't I wasn't terribly productive. But that's then, amazing. That's great. That <laughs> <laughs> might say more about me than them, though. I'm not sure. So I should explain to listeners, I think we've talked about it in some previous episodes, but a fabulous shop like the, there's that it used to be had totally integrated companies like an IBM or an Intel, which still do have their own silicon fabrication plants. But now there's a ton of, of semiconductor companies and maybe quotation marks where all the design work is done by the company, but all the actual manufacturing production is farmed out to, uh, you know, sing, or to, to Taiwan or maybe Singapore or China or Germany or so forth. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Very small operation and basically just software engineering, but with a hardware bent. This sounds like a theme. It sounds like a theme. In yeah. the, we'll, we'll, we'll call back to that in a little bit. So the, the modem chips you're developing, if I remember right, so that would be like the ADSL, uh, like telecoms and um, cable modem period. You're developing broadband modems. We were, yeah, we were actually specializing in wireless modems for, for niche uses, so. Oh, that's interesting. That's where my got, you know, I wrote about Wi-Fi for about 10 years and cut my teeth in some of that stuff. But on the higher level side, and it seemed like that's, there was such a, a huge amount of growth in trying to figure out that segment of the market that companies knew there was a lot of money there. Billions of devices would eventually be sold. So this was a specialty market, not a general, say, Wi-Fi or cellular modem or, or something like that. That's right. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a boutique operation for, um, for customers who had specific use cases. So not not high volume. So, so getting from semiconductors to product design is, you know, that's kind of a that's an interesting road. What path do you take? I and mean, we're talking about now a 15-year period of time, and I know right. you've been engaged in your current activities for a few years. How did you get out of the engineering and that low-level sort of chip orientation into this higher-level place where you're making products? Well, I think a couple of things happened. One was that I had never really intended to be an engineer, and I found that that type of engineering uh, very dry and uh, sort of cubicle-bound engineering, I call it. And the other thing uh, was that I play the drums in a band, and uh, it just so happened that the keyboardist in my band was a better drummer than I was, which was a very, which was a, which was a very difficult situation to deal with. <laughs> so he he was constantly criticizing me for speeding up when I got a bit nervous and, uh, you know, he had a lot of advice to give about drumming basically. <laughs> and I was thinking, uh, you know, that he was wrong. And then I thought, well, maybe there's a, maybe there's a scientific way to prove, uh, to prove that I'm right. And I thought, you know, there must be, there must be some way 
uh, for a drummer to monitor their tempo. So this was sort of all on the side. This was this was my recreational activity and and not really related to my work at all. But I looked around for a product that might do this. Didn't really find much. There were some products, but they were sort of hobbyist built. And I thought, you know, there's a there's a product here. If you look at at, at smartphones and um, the extra utility they can provide by plugging in a sensor, it, there must be an easier, cheaper, better way to do this. Basically, I thought. So I actually came up with that idea, I spec'd the product, and I took it to another company, signed an NDA with them and said, develop this, please. You know, meanwhile, I'll do my normal day job. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really pick it up and run with it, as is, as is the case, I found. Um, so I went to a friend, uh, a roommate from years earlier, who happens to be uh, the owner of this industrial design firm, and I said, uh, you know, I found this process really fascinating, uh, I enjoy it very much. I'm thinking it would be great if I could find a way to shift my career into just b- basically developing products and and bringing them to market. And um, you know, I'd found I'd found all aspects of it fascinating from this from the specification, from the invention to the specification, solving some of the technical challenges. So so I asked about this, and he said, basically, uh, he's a good friend and he's very honest. He said, you know, no one's going to hire you to do this. Your resume is, is 10 years of electrical engineering. So the only thing you can really do is start doing it yourself. Or that would be, that would be my advice, he said, is to just start doing it yourself. So, so uh, I started doing it. So the, the, which parts – so this is, that's always an interesting thing. It's like this is not something you had expertise in. But you said, I, I want to make this. How did you go about acquiring the expertise? Was it all – I mean I'm a big street corner guy. I'm, I, I program, but – I've never I've taken took some classes in college decades ago, but I've programmed for 20 years, and I'm kind of on the street car, right? you know, a street street corner. It's very little that I feel formally trained in, right. but I know there's a great advantage also of being formally trained. What was your approach to picking up the expertise you needed to do this this personal project that that you had such interest in? Well, so I think it was probably a little bit of naivety and ignorance, uh, to be honest. That's also very powerful too. <laughs> I didn't actually know what I was doing. When I look back, I'm I'm very embarrassed. In fact, the first manifestation of the sensor was uh, was was putting my phone at enormous risk of damage and and also not working. Um, so uh, I sort of diagnosed <laughs> these issues uh, and brought in people who I thought knew more about it than I did to help. So it was it was very incremental at first and. Uh, Basically, I learned that I didn't really know what I was doing and needed needed uh, needed to find someone who did. Is that what you did? You seek out, did you try to find another firm to work with or people, or, or did you just did you try to develop your knowledge more deeply at that point? Yeah, a combination of both. I mean, I, I did some research. I have I have the background in physics, so I knew that uh, it was a solvable problem. Um, <laughs> but I also just seem to have this yeah. network of, of of really smart, crazy people who are willing to. Uh, to uh, drop everything and talk for an hour about uh, about resistor values. That's fantastic, though. Is right knowing uh, you know feasibility is a big thing when you're making product. I mean, software. I don't know. It's not that software is more achievable, and then in the software world you have the halting problem and things where you may not be able to deterministically figure out if something is actually achievable. Maybe more in cryptography or certain computational areas, but but in hardware it seems like a much harder thing to know. Can I actually? physically make a product that does this thing. And so the physics background, you say that actually helped you conceive of what, 
limits you faced in in what realm with with Backbeater? What did what were you thinking about there? About um, was it a frequency analysis, or what was the part that helped you there? Yeah, no, a few of the. I mean, one thing is that I knew that it had to be a passive part. I didn't want to have a power supply. I wanted it to be simple. In fact, the whole model really depended on doing most of the um, heavy lifting with a phone, with a smartphone, or with a with a handheld device, and just plugging in some auxiliary sensor uh, and, and uh, really not having to do much design. So it came down to an exercise in making that sensor compatible with the phone. So is you, you're another one of the folks who I think um, Apple really pushed into this field because they gave you a baseline. You didn't have to build the computer part. You didn't have to create right. that. You had, you know, and so I, I'm guessing, so this was, was this more uh, like three or four years ago uh, after the iPhone had had some penetration, they moved into a few new models of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and that, I mean, that's, that's the interesting part is I think about a lot of the products that are developed uh, more recently, which the iPhone, either the app, which is true for you or um, an add on. And it's true. I mean, for Android and other phones too, but that you didn't have to create, the basic structure for this, you right, had this already right. available to you and you could, you know, third party apps were available. Uh, how easy does Apple make it on the hardware side or how hard do they make it when you create something like this that you want to sell and integrate? Do you have to, is there a certification problem through the or problem the certification process with the, uh, with the audio jacks? I know you're relying on the audio jack as opposed to the, the dock connector or the lightning connector. Right. No, that's exactly right. There's no, there's no, there's no certification process with the audio jack, which is why a lot of, a lot of uh, efforts are aimed at that, uh, and there's a very, very difficult um, certification process and some very restrictive rules if you if you want to plug into the uh, 30-pin connector or the modern equivalent. Do you digitize the input from the audio no. port? It gives you a digital source, no. or is it digital? Or I mean, is it digital, or do you have to, to do some digital uh, digitization operation? No, it's all it's all analog going into the microphone jack, and then, that's what yeah. it is. So, so Apple gives you what does Apple give you? I'm just I'm curious at the base level because I, I never I know that like Square built their reader on top of the audio jack right. to not to avoid that problem too, and they are practically reading. I mean, they took the magnetic stripe and turned it into audio information. It goes in the jack. What do you get out of that jack that the app has? access to what's the stream of information um you're getting into the realm of uh of, of where i hired people to uh, to take over <laughs> but, but I, I do know that they ran into some issues with, with um with the resolution that they could attain because of the uh the built-in a to d format but there was oh, so the resolution the resolution is the is that's the fine the divisions the number like the uh not the depth of bits like the quality of the sample or the accuracy right. of the sample but it's how frequently the sample is taken exactly the the, the sample is is binned into um into into time time slots and so one of the problems with the backbeater of course is that we needed to know exactly when an event occurred because we wanted to provide accurate tempo feedback so that was actually uh, quite technically challenging to go into that bin and then look for the the spike in amplitude and and uh, find the exact location and resolve it with a high enough degree of accuracy to provide a you know provide a useful product. Let's take a break to talk about ZipRecruiter, one of our sponsors. I've been an entrepreneur for over two decades, and it's always been hard to find the right people to hire. With so many job boards out there, how can you know which one will produce the best talent? Realistically, to fill the position fast and with the perfect candidate, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can do it with this week's sponsor, ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter lets you post to more than 40 job sites at once. 
ZipRecruiter also posts your job on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just post once and you watch the qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. You can screen applicants, rate them, hire the right people fast. And right now, for you, dear listeners, you can try ZipRecruiter.com for free and find out why it's been used by over 100,000 businesses. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND, like New Disruptors, or click on the banner at NewDisrupt.org. Give them a try for the next position for which you're hiring, and you'll see how you can get the best of all the job boards with just a few clicks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. And now back to the show. So a backbeater, this is something, this is a project that you didn't, uh, did not go through Kickstarter, right? This was not a crowdfunding project. How did you go from having a day job and this is a side project, gaining all this knowledge, working with other parties? How'd you get the money to bring this to market? I know, I mean, I know it's a simple device at one level, but it involves manufacturing components and testing and the app to, to the uh, app production, app programming. How did you go from that day job or, or did you keep the day job while you tried to get this out the door? Yes, no, I very much kept my day job uh, throughout and, and still have it. Oh, is that right? So this is, so you, so you have a full-time job while you're developing these products. I have a, I've actually switched to, to contracting, but yes. Uh, I see. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's great because I mean, a lot of people don't have the backup and it's, I mean, especially, you know, I've talked to so many people who 2007 or 2008, they're like, well, I lost my job and I had to go for this full time. You've actually been able to make a living and be able to produce this uh, while doing that. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm very busy. That's, that's a good state to be. That's sort of funny. It's like, I'm exceedingly busy and sometimes too busy, but it's an, an overabundance of good things as opposed to an overabundance of things I don't want to do. So right. sounds like you may be in the same boat. So now, so back, backbeater was your first project that you came through this way. I'm looking at extrasensory devices, uh, site. And I know it's kind of our, our end goal in the conversation is to talk more about, uh, Luxie, which is the mm-hmm. most recent thing you've released. But so you, you have, um, differentiated the product. There's backbeater. You've got new versions coming out you have these other tools these splitters rocket wiretap dj toaster tell me about i'm always curious about you had this one idea you had an itch you wanted to scratch almost it was revenge engineering right you wanted to prove the drummer right or wrong oh wait so did you in the end you built the product was he right or was he wrong he was right i'm afraid i i i now i now have the maximum the maxim that uh, good things can come out of mediocrity (laughs) did you now did you uh use your own product to improve your drumming Actually, I haven't done a lot of drumming since then. I've been too busy, but uh, I, ha- I have used it and, uh, and, 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 and find it really quite difficult to, to, to stay in consistent time. But oh, that's, that's a, really interesting. That's, that's another issue altogether. I was going to say, they don't, I don't know if they see this in New Zealand, but it's the cobbler's children have no shoes. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's the, it's the, uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to be doing right now that I right. specialize in, and instead I'm doing other stuff that I really love too. But that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the choices we make. So the you have all these differentiated products now. The splitters... You came out with one product. You scratched this itch. What led you to do more? I mean, it sounds like it was very difficult. This first thing, you had a huge learning curve. Did you come at it and say, now I know what I'm supposed to be doing? And from there, I mean, you still had other itches to scratch, clearly. Right. Well, actually, what happened was the splitter, the first splitter that I launched on Kickstarter was an essential part of the Backbeater tool and one that I had initially assumed would be something I could buy. And it turned out that I couldn't. There was a product available, but it was immediately discontinued. So I had to make it. In fact, uh, the Backbeater sensor itself was uh, sort of a hybrid Frankenstein thing made out of other existing hardware. 
Um, but the splitter had to be made from scratch. There was really no other option. So that's what really launched that effort. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, this is, so you've done uh, three Kickstarters and what? So the wiretap headphone Microsoft splitter, you funded right. that back in, uh, in, you know, relatively early in Kickstarter's history in late 2001 and, um, you know, had a nice 166% funding, but still a modest amount of money, uh, just over $3,000. Uh, so you already had the design for this, but you needed the money to be able to go into production. Was that the idea? Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. And then, you know, I see you've also, so that's your first experience with crowdfunding. How much effort was that to pull it together that, that first time? It was, I mean, a lot of things were new at that point. So I know it may have been another steep learning curve for you. Sure. I mean, have you seen the video? <laughs> oh, no, I haven't. I've watched the more recent well, ones. You can see how uh, horrifically naive I was. I mean, I'm sort of standing in, a, in, a, in front of a, a potted tree in my apartment talking to my uh, handy cam. So, but, well, some, but authenticity, you, you know, there is that. People, it was uh, certainly authentic. <laughs> <laughs> well, the standard keeps going up, though. It doesn't, right. I mean, your later videos yes. are, are all, you know, beautiful depth of field and focus. So you had right. to hit a point. All of us, you know, I have some, I've had some Kickstarter ideas and, you know, the, if I, if you don't do a good video, you're slitting your wrist uh, in terms exactly. of what you can do now. But that wasn't true. That was not true two years ago. No, years no, ago. exactly. Um, but then that's, I think that's a good thing too, because it shows the commitment. Like it, it raises the bar maybe too high for some people, but it raises the bar that if you're going to do a video, everyone's going to compare it with the thousand other Kickstarter videos. And you have to be that good. So if you're not committed enough to make a video that looks that good, maybe you're not committed enough to make the whole thing happen. I don't know if it filters more people out or, or what. Yeah, it may be the case. Although I hate it to be a gatekeeper thing too, and but I'm sure videographers love it. They're getting more work. Well, I think that the, the, the overarching thing is that uh, Kickstarter has made it so much more accessible. I mean, right. I, I just don't know that I would have uh, pitched up the money to develop these products without without Kickstarter. It's just it's made it's it's opened up this model to me and and, and others. Well, and so and I know that um, when, again when I look at the products you have, so you so you have some that you uh, in Backbeater. Uh, you self-funded. You've got the wiretap splitter that was crowdfunded, but then you have these variants on the wiretap now that you sell. It seems like when I look at how you advance, you went from some things being funded to then being able to do these like Baroque versions. So you have three different kinds of of uh, wiretap now, you know, the Rocket, Wiretap, and DJ Toaster. The last of those you also funded via Kickstarter. That's the more recent one, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. So, so what basically happened is we spent all that money to get the tool made, and then uh, oh. we realized that we could just change the internal wiring, have the manufacturer change the internal wiring, and use the same tool. So we thought, well, now that we have this beautiful tool, let's let's make some more configurations, basically, and we we wouldn't have to raise that uh, that tooling money. Oh, I see. Right, because that's the expensive cost, getting all the molds made and going through the process, finalizing everything, making sure everything fits and has the tolerances exactly. and the finish. Exactly. We've ta talked about that a lot on this show with some previous product folks about you know the design part and the engineering part sometimes winds up being far easier than the manufacturing part because of those little fiddly assembly issues. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I could never have done it without this, uh, without the help of this industrial design firm. And this, this, it's just made me appreciate how much goes into hardware design. It's extremely difficult. And there are so many potential gotchas that I, you know, if you were naive, you just wouldn't be aware of. So yeah. now, now, the folks you work with spark factor design, I haven't talked with them. I should probably talk to them too. On the other side of this kind of, because you're, you're a, we were talking about fabulous 
semiconductor manufacturer before or development that you're in the that same relationship. I said we'd call it back. You're in the same relationship. Right. You get to do the design part, the conception part, the the marketing, raising the fun in, funds, all of that. And where's the line where you split and you say you hand off to a firm that contracts to do the engineering? So I actually have a desk in the office down here and uh, work closely with these guys all the time. So yeah, the line the line is a little bit blurry, but basically, I just um, I have this relationship with Spark Factor where uh, I may not be the highest priority, but I can I can use their engineers when I need them. Oh, that's terrific! And they're you know I'll I'll link to their website in the show notes as well as as your products and site. It's they've developed some stuff that people are extremely familiar with. I owned an XServe; it was one of the things they designed. Uh, right. The Apple Remote. I had a Meraki router, in fact, too. So mm-hmm. I know I know there for anybody who's been involved in a lot of aspects of tech and consumer products will will not realize that they've touched stuff designed by Spark Factor, but they have. So it seems like a very nice company to be working with. Yeah, no, they're an extremely pedigreed firm and I'm, you know, I'm I'm very lucky to have this relationship. But so how far into the engineering do you wind up going? Are you doing feasibility or do you sketch things out, do 3D rendering? Like I'm curious about where the division between like making thinking about the look of something, 3D prototyping all those stages and where you hand that off and uh, or you said the line is blurred is that do you work interactively then with the engineers on those stages sure yeah i mean at first i was very hands off because i wasn't you know i i didn't know anything about it so i just trusted them but now as i'm as i'm learning more and getting a bit more confident in my opinions um i'm i'm having a lot more input into the physical designs which is nice and I think, uh, you know, it shows clearly your development as in, on the engineering side shows with Luxie. And I'd love to talk about this development because this is something, you know, when I saw the product, it seemed like, oh, didn't someone already do this? Not that I'd seen it before, but it's it's a great kind of thing that is self-evident. The minute you see it, you're like, oh, of course this makes sense. And it again, leverages the fact that people are carrying smartphones. Like, right. I don't have a light meter. I'm a, I'm a Somewhere I'm sort of I'm not really a prosumer, but I take pictures seriously. Sometimes they are published in publications, but I'm not a pro shooter, and I have lower end equipment. I do not have a light meter. I don't even have a a, a flash, you know, really at this point. It's, I'm, gonna, I'm working my way up to it, mm-hmm. but I do have an iPhone, and you it, and so I don't necessarily want to buy another piece of gear. I have to charge, carry with me, manage when I'm balancing everything else. The Lexi seems sort of predicated on the idea that you've got people who are carrying a phone and don't necessarily want to be carrying that light meter. What was the thinking that went into this product? I mean, coming up with it and, and going into uh, crowdfunding and manufacture. So uh, one thing we added, well, one thing we went after was we thought we'd look around for uh, fairly expensive pieces of dedicated hardware uh, and just and throwing it wide open, throwing the net wide open for anything that has some kind of dedicated display feedback hardware is of, of, of a similar size to the phone and then might be uh, replicated by adding sensing hardware to the phone. Basically, the, the model is to take advantage of that processing display and, and interface, uh, add some piece of auxiliary hardware that provides the sensor of this other device and see if we can't uh, you know, give the same functionality for, for a much cheaper price. Is a light sensor is a really critical thing if you're not just shooting, let's say, um, you know, candidly, like you're out in the field and you're, you know, if you're just taking snapshots, it's not a big deal. But when you're trying to get a very, um, let's say, calibrated result, this a light sensor helps you 
figure out exactly how to set your camera. You know, you've got it on a tripod. You're trying to get a specific thing. The camera sensors are not as good as something like this, if I understand it right. So yeah, but there are a couple of cases in which you you just have to have a light meter, and one of the one of them is um, arises because the camera has a reflected light meter on it, which means that it's looking at the light that's being reflected back at it, and not the incident light on the subject. So if you've got a lighting situation where there's some other source of light that isn't the subject of your photograph, then that sensor will get confused. You actually need to put something where the subject is and, and measure the light that's falling on it. Oh, I see. And that's the and the, right. And the, it's not that. I mean, I think I guess as you say, the, to get a light sensor that's comparable to this, you could wind up spending hundreds of dollars conceivably, but you've already got the smartphone. And if you're, a, if you're a serious, if you're spending, I mean, I know there's this whole prosumer category uh, for photography now that's, that's boom. You know, and people will go out and spend 2000, 5000, $10,000 on cameras and lenses and you see them out and about in Seattle. I don't know if this is true. It probably is in San Francisco. I see people with this ridiculous assortment of lenses. I know they're not professionals. They're doing this for enjoyment, but boy, do they drop money on gear but that's a you know that's a, a lucrative part of the market for camera makers and lens makers. But there's a whole other group that's like me that this is the product for me where I don't want the light sensor hardware. I want the light sensor function. Right, right, exactly. And in fact, to be honest, we were surprised by by the six. I mean, by just how much uh, how popular Luxie was, um, and that, and that really speaks to that market. It, it, it it's uh, it's obviously it's obviously not insignificant. <laughs> Can you tell me about the development of it? You know, you said you were looking for this. There was sort of a low-hanging fruit category. I know you've dedicated the company to finding things where, as we keep talking about, where the, you can leverage existing hardware so the cost of what you make is relatively small compared to someone's existing invented costs or invested cost. So you you work through ideas. Where did – I mean, so you come up with this, I should say, but how did you sketch out? How did you come up with the shape and form and test the feasibility of this before you went too far down – the, the line to, to going out to uh, raise funds for it? Well, so actually, d- during this campaign, we've acquired a, a 3D printer, which we've started using more and more. We've we've had a quick turnaround. I believe they're called SLA prototypes made, but it's actually been a, a highly iterative process to get this design right. There have been many, many prototypes, um, m- many uh, manifestations of Luxia scattered around the, around the office. So it, ha- it has been iterative, and we've... we've um, you know, we've we've had to design tolerances into it, and we've had to keep testing the prototypes. And um, but but it's 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 all very approachable. It's not it's not that expensive to get a prototype made. And now that we have the three D printer, of course, we can we can make one uh, in an hour. So. Oh, that's great! So that dramatically reduces. I mean, that's fascinating because that's that would be for a lot of people the used to be the hard part was coming up with an idea, then testing feasibility with something that closely enough resembled what you're doing. And I've talked to people like, um, I talked to the Glyph uh, guys who made the tripod adapter for the iPhone years ago and being able to outsource 3D printing was a big thing, but theirs was a hard piece of plastic. You know, they were testing a shape and its flexibility. They weren't testing uh, functionality. Uh, how how much uh, software development did you have to do while you're testing the prototyping to see if the idea would work as well. Well, actually, we partnered with a guy in uh, in, in England who's who's the uh, developer for Pocket Light Meter. He's he's actually a math professor at a university there, and he was extremely oh, extremely helpful. So we didn't initially look to uh, provide a software solution. It's only 
Um, after the campaign was was successful, we thought um, it might behoove us to uh, to bring out an app as well, and, and maybe we could uh, control the user experience a little better. So, oh, I see. So before it used, it relied on this app from another party that you'd plug it in and you'd get that app in order to test the right. Lights. The initial the initial intention was just for it to diffuse the light and capture the light from from the uh, 180 degree field of view to make mm-hmm. to make a light meter reading more accurate. Basically, that was that was the intent. I see. And now, now, and so, yeah, so the, um, that's an interesting point. I want to talk about the, the scope of your campaign too, because you had the same thing happen. That's happened to a lot of people who've come up with an idea that's gone on fire. As you set to raise $10,000 back in February to April of this year, you raised $120,000. You have 5,200 backers for this thing and, you know, maybe expected the 500 to a thousand, right? right? So, <laughs> I know this is the problem of plenty. Your original ship date was May. I'm looking at your notes to backers here and, you know, you know, I was a little naive given the scope of this to think, did you have that problem of it was possible to fulfill at one scale of manufacture right. within the time and it just, you, you know, the, it ramped up because I see that it seems like, you, I mean, I should say, but as we record this, you got the shipment weeks ago. So it's actually, you're, you're done with that part. Um, it's all, you know, it's all finished manufacturing. So we know the completion time, but you named it May. What pushed it back by a few months? Uh, well, there were a number of reasons. Um, there were, there were some changes in the design and then it was just a problem for the manufacturer. He wasn't, he just wasn't expecting, uh, expecting the order to be so large. So there was a, there were issues there and we, um, and, and again, the other issue is that we're not actually, it's not actually a huge order on, on their on their scale. So we, uh, you know, we ran into some, some priority issues there and um, the changes, changes the, to the design as well. So, and then, and then the other thing that we did was we decided that we would uh, add packaging add a pouch add a lanyard and all these things just, uh, just push out there. And, and that was probably a direct result of the success of the campaign. You, you, you know, you have this overwhelming response and then you want to provide a really quality product. Now we're thinking we want to, we want a retail quality <laughs> product. So, right. so, uh, yeah, so those things all contributed. And then, uh, and then, uh, the fulfillment process has just been, uh, one of the most amazing learning experiences of my life and, and, uh, and, uh, extremely, extremely complicated. <laughs> I've hear that from, I swear every Kickstarter project, it's like, you think you're done. You're like, we made it. And your right, pictures right. on on the site here on the Kickstarter site, the pallets showed up. You had to yeah. break them up and walk them through the door because yeah, they, they wouldn't fit through the door. door. You know, all these all these really embarrassing things happen. In fact, um, Kick, Kickstarter contacted me when I went to launch the toaster. Uh, they contacted me and said, "No, uh, you've got far too much on your hands with Luxie, oh, yeah. uh, so you're not allowed to launch the campaign." I ended up um, having a a fairly sincere conversation with the guy. And convincing him that it was okay to let me release the toaster, but he said, "You know, you you don't know what you've got on your plate here." Uh, and I was like, "Oh no, it's fine, it's fine." And and and, and he was absolutely right. I mean, it was a, a a sort of a tidal wave about to hit. Well, we're seeing the rise of companies that are providing those services too. I think because you know that you know because I know that one of the advantages is yes, there's a learning curve. Yes, it was later, but Kickstarter people back Kickstarter. 
you don't go in thinking it's going to be on time. I mean, I know you as you're right. absolutely earnest about what you think as a backer and then you've backed other projects. You don't go in assuming it's going to be day and date that's promised because right. you know there's unforeseen things. Where, where I'm fascinated as I talk to manufacturers or designers who go into manufacturing, like I talked to the folks who made the uh, pen type A. It's a uh, Seiwei Wong and Taylor Levy of uh, CWNT. It's their studio. Uh, they had a ridiculously huge success and they had to rethink everything at each stage. And they had the issue that I think a lot of, it sounds like you've come to this too, is that the prototype may be very close to what you want, but from a prototype to actually something that's mass produced, that step is hard, isn't it? To, to actually do the refinement to make sure the mass produced item works as well as your prototype. Right. No, and exactly. And I think I, I can't understate the importance of the, uh, of the experience of the guys at Spark Factor. I mean, they, they, they've done this for years and they know what is potentially a problem. I mean, just the, the tiniest little facet of the device uh, that I would never in a million years think might be a problem ends up being a problem for manufacturing uh, in bulk. I mean, the tools get used many thousands of times over and things just happen differently. You, yeah, they wear right. They wear down. They might have to they make wear a down. New yeah, tool. yeah. The things that the the expertise that goes into designing the the product was is just uh, so much more than I ever imagined. But then you got it. So you had a a, a few months that you'd hope not to have happen, and, and that scale you're talking about it is also I think critical. I, I want to emphasize because you pointed out. I mean, you had uh, fifty two hundred backers for this, and and most of them were getting a device. They mostly backed at a level to get one, but then obviously. The key to Kickstarter working is you didn't just go on for 5000 You went on for whatever the quantity made sense now that you had the funding. So, right. But even at the scale that you went to, that's still small for the company you're working yeah. with. That's not a huge exactly. quantity because they're used to dealing with a lot of people doing manufacturing like this, 50000 100000 $5 million. So right. you're still a small right. customer to them even though this is the biggest thing you'd worked on. Right. No, that's that's true. It seems like a hard problem because you need smaller scale. I know there's sometimes uh, – like for – um. Injection molding. I know there are firms that will do very small quantities, but they don't do the electronic assembly part. So if it's just a part, it's one thing. But if you need a complete product made with multiple, I mean, you know, I'm looking at this device, there were different, obviously you had different tools and molds to put this together. Right. How many pieces are there in it that have to be assembled? Is it just, is it two or is it more than that? Well, it's, yeah, it's two. There's a diffusion dome that's the same for both the iPhone 4 and the iPhone 5 model. And then there's the iPhone 4 and iPhone 5 clips. So there's three parts in total. Um, and then you have the tolerances, I imagine, are very, very tight for the dome to fit into the ring that it goes into. No, yes, extremely tight. How tight are they? Are they how many millimeter or fractions? I, of I, I, I don't know. I can, I can go and ask one of my engineers. But. <laughs> you, you don't want to know. I, uh, I have this, it's not exactly a related story, but uh, years ago when I had my first child, my wife and I bought a crib before he was born. And I go to assemble it, and there's a piece that it's this weird they don't they won't allow these for sale in the United States anymore the drop down ones there's been too many deaths because they get they fall apart and there's other problems this is before all they banned them for sale and there was this one wood piece that held the sides together in the front and I cannot get it to work and I contact the company and I'm like I think this is one thirty second of an inch off. Right. Why did you make something a crib with a tolerance of with wood with press right, board? Right. And you know, but it gets down to that where you're like one tiny fraction of a fraction of something could mean the difference between a ruined batch and and one that works for you. Yeah, no, exactly. There was something I was just not uh, aware of coming into this. So. But now you know this. This is always fascinating. So now you've gone through this scope of. It. I know you're still in the sort of 
end game of fulfillment, you've got the software since you, you know, you had the, you had, you know, feature creep, right? As you said, Oh, we right. could do this. We could mm-hmm. do that. Well, now we should develop a software pack and it's package and the software looks great. The demo you have up on the, uh, on the Kickstarter site. So you still have, this is going to linger for a bit and then you've got a new product for sale, but what did you learn from this that you plan to put into the next product? Is there like a specific thing you came out that said, I'm never going to do this again, or, Oh, now I know I can do whatever the next time I plan a product design. Right. Well, I said, there are certainly several things in this campaign that, that I won't be doing again. And, and, and they are things that would not have mattered so much, uh, if the response hadn't been so great, but just, uh, for example, we ended up with a fairly dizzying combination of rewards, uh, and we made some some uh, some green ones, and every every single addition adds this extra layer of complexity to the fulfillment process and the manufacturing process. And you know, I I, I dream of uh, going back in time and saying, okay, there's one there's one Luxy, uh, get it or don't. <laughs> That's what everybody says. You know that? Like, I think there's a handful of people I've talked to who said. I had five rewards. That was it. You know, and then the rest are like, we did 35 rewards and we're still. Right, right. Now, do I understand this? You, you had some, um, this is something I've seen on another Kickstarter campaign. If I understand what you did correctly here is you had the same item listed as multiple pledges, but you had limited numbers at the lower prices. And then when those were exhausted, people could come in as a later adopter in the Kickstarter campaign and pay a higher price. Right, that's correct. I love yeah. That. Now, where did you get that idea from? Did you come up with it, or were you looking at what was going on? Uh, I think we, uh, we've been looking at, at successful Kickstarter campaigns. You want to reward the early adopter. I mean, in some ways, they're a higher risk taker, the first person who, who pledges. Um, you know, assuming, of course, that the that the campaign reaches its goal. But that's basically the idea: is that you want you want to get some momentum, reward those reward those real risk takers at the start, and uh, and then basically try to recoup some of the some of the money as the campaign sort of builds. Did you see this uh, flashpoint that um, I've, I've seen in some other campaigns where once you reach the goal and you reached it pretty early in the campaign, how early was it? Was it within a few days? It was, it was during the first day. Yeah. <sighs> see, for some campaigns, you hit the point at which uh, the project funds, so you hit your right. $10,000 right. mark and people suddenly view it as, oh, it's a pre-order. It's not right. speculative. We know. Right. I mean, people... Some people don't know. I found talking to them that if you put money into Kickstarter and the project doesn't reach its goal, some people do not realize that their money isn't collected. And now with Indiegogo, you can set it up that way. With Kickstarter, you have to reach the funding goal. So I've wondered if there's an extra psychological effect that once it says funded, the people right. have any concern about that are suddenly like, oh, okay, now it's safer. Right. No, that's possibly the case. I mean, we saw a sort of logarithmic um, uptake. Actually, well, there's, there's an enormous initial spike that takes a – you know, the first three or four days, and then and then you get the sort of logarithmic growth. That's great, though. That's what you want. And then at the, at the end, did you have a spike at the end? Is it near the uh, close? Yeah, there's a, there's a slight bulge there. We were running a lot of analysis on it. Uh, my fiance is a PhD in economics at Stanford, so we've been we've doing all all sorts of uh, analysis on on this and seeing things that probably don't exist. Well, those are great. If you publish them, everyone will be very happy because every time someone with some real numbers puts them out, we all glom on them and right. and try to take them apart. I talked to uh, to Craig Maud uh, some months ago who wrote a piece in 2010 on his blog that people still cite because he did a publishing campaign for a book. They were doing a new edition of a book they'd published, uh, he and a partner, and he published this very detailed analysis, like a distribution of pledges and so forth. Um, and they raised some, you know, like $50,000, which was a ton of money in 2010 on Kickstarter. 
but they um, that still gets cited because their people haven't released as much information since because now it's competitive. I mean, at some level, there's a shared knowledge base, but there's also a competitive one too. Right. No, exactly. I'll have to look that up. Actually, it's it's very interesting and it still holds true. I've seen and I talk to people who, if they, even if they don't publish numbers, they talk privately. Say, did you see this? Yes. And a, a site I work on, that uh, editorial site called Tidbits, we did a membership campaign that was essentially like crowdfunding, and we saw exactly the same distribution. Dollars distribution of uh, you know the sort of the histogram of money. We set up the same kind of pledges, and we're like, it just keeps holding true that people, the the uh, invisible hand of the market, right. <laughs> sorts people into these categories. If you do sufficiently well, if you do poorly, there's not enough information. But when you do as you do with you know, 5,500 backers, the histogram is going to probably be very similar right. to those for other projects, even though it's entirely different people pledging. Yeah, I expect so. All right, so you have done a lot so far. You've still got your contracting job. You mentioned in an email you've got three jobs you've got right, right. now. So you're busy. You know, I know that Kiwis are industrious, but you know, <laughs> you're making Americans look bad with all this good work. What is your next thing? Not your secret, but like what do you want to focus your time on next now that you're you know, nearing the end of completing this whole phase? Well, we've got another campaign that we're just about to launch, so that's probably looming large on the radar for me. Um, I've been <clears throat> very much looking forward to getting Luxie all shipped, and that's, that's taken up a lot of my, my time and my, uh, my concerns for the, for the last couple of months. Uh, and then uh, I, I guess I hope that it happens all over again. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a nice, maybe a nice little campaign again would be uh, would be fine. I'm not, I don't know. It tends to happen though. People who have successful Kickstarter campaigns, you now have all of the people who back the. You got fifty five hundred people right. who already gave you money in the con game world. These are already suckers, right? Right. So you, <laughs> you already got them on the hook. Hey, you paid us last time. And once you deliver, obviously you need to finish this one project. When you deliver, and people right. are like, okay, you know, this happened with uh, with the um, elevation dock where they were so delayed, but the scale of what they did, it wound up, and you know, they're carving solid aluminum with, um, you know, water blast. I mean, mm -hmm. they were very ambitious and it was late and they're, you know, they're issues, but I love mine. I got the little adapter for an iPhone uh, five for lightning dock. I love the thing. It's gorgeous. And people who got them, love them. Elevation labs could come back. You know, the right. people will remember that in the end they did fulfill and they produced something beautiful and we know they learned. And I know that you've, you know, talking through this, you've learned about the rough points in this, you know, the next time people, I think, We'll trust you that way too. Yeah, I, I very much hope so. I mean, I think one of the mistakes that I made was I didn't really communicate enough. I, I, I figured, I, I sort of assumed that if I just got my head down and worked as hard as I could, and then, you know, the, the ends would justify the means. And that I probably could have kept people aware of what I was doing a, a little bit better. Um, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, my, and the, the other thing, of course, is I thought, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, I, I need, I need, the, I need the, this one to get manufactured and out to all the backers before I do it again because, yeah, I need that trust. It's good, and and obviously, Kickstarter crowdfunding still seems like a reasonable way to approach this, as opposed to other. I mean, now you've got this thing that that was a, a good success at the mm -hmm. scale. And some people will take that. I know some companies where they'll take that and they'll say, okay, here's where I now go get backers. I get angels. I go to right. a bank. But crowdfunding is still the path you want to take. Yeah, no, there are a lot of really great things about it. And, and not least is that I think it's fantastic value because uh, it, it's, great, it's great publicity. It's great marketing uh, as well as you know, providing the funds for, for uh, tool manufacture. So, yeah, I've been really happy with it. It's, well, that's it's good. It's I, I mean, crowdfunding is such a behemoth now. There's so many 
I mean, I'll be curious about Kickstarter's numbers, but they could top a, you know, five hundred million or more, yeah. maybe six hundred million for this year, and it does mm. not seem to be slowing down. So, yeah, we have not seen fatigue yet for people backing. The thing is, you you, you get the, you get that lovely combination of uh, of verifying that a product is is in demand, and you get the funding to to launch it. So, I I, I don't really know how I would go about doing the market research to find out if there was a demand for Luxie without Kickstarter. So it solves a couple of really tricky problems, for, especially for the small operation. This is, I, I really appreciate that as being, I'm a small business type person myself and being able to try things out with a lower threshold for failure. You know, you don't go bankrupt because right. of the stage at which you get into. One of the alternative models, you know, there's some companies that are, are working on approaches where there's sort of Kickstarter alternatives in which money is released at different stages for products. So they're supposed to be providing a greater assurance to a backer mm -hmm. that the thing will be made. But at the same time, you wind up with less money being released at phases when maybe it's needed too, in order to make sure the right. thing is made. There's lots of trade-offs, it seems. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, as I said, the biggest one for me is that is that I, I just lie awake at night wondering if what I've come up with is is ridiculous or not, and if anyone would want it in a million years, so that's <laughs> well. So far, it seems like you've uh, scored in every regard. Your product, people, the Kickstarters well. have all funded. People are buying it. And <laughs> the next the next stage, of course, is you know eventually this has to take over your entire life, and then it's a full time job. Right. But, but you you right, productive exactly. Kiwi, you go ahead have your three jobs and <laughs> keep mm -hmm. everybody hire other people. It's all it's all good. Uh, James, thanks for talking about your products. This is great to have you on the show. Thanks for sharing your insight. Well, thank you very much, Ken. It's my pleasure. I'll be at the XOXO Conference and Festival in Portland on September 19th through the 22nd. If you see me, please say hi. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.